Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. And live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York's Times Square, this is Fast Money. And I'm Kelly Evans, in for Melissa Lee today. Our traders on the desk are Pete Nigerian, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. On the big show tonight, don't let this down day fool you. Market bull Tony Dwyer says it's time to play offense as the U.S. moves out of what he calls the third mini recession. Then, easy on the clutch, are Uber and Lyft finally getting in the gear? The traders will play the role of backseat drivers and debate that one today. But first, energy stocks logged their biggest day since January. The sector closed out of correction, and this following a major weekend attack on Saudi Arabia's oil facilities. If the outage is extended or if military action is employed in the aftermath, what could the further fallout be? Let's start with Mr. Adami. Well, first of all, welcome. I mean, this is <laughs> yeah. the first time you've hosted this show. Yeah. yeah. See that? We've had this. And, and, and you I happen to today. know your father's watching. So Mike Evans, your daughter, yeah. what, the whole hour. It's Not Dave, just, but oh, Mike it's is Dave. Right. Did I say well, I know Mike Evans? <laughs> Why did I say Mike Evans? It's a from the Bears. Too bad we're live. That is so great. That is terrible. Guy, you are the best. Though. Anyway. And you get to so, go first. So what's the fallout from this? Well, I'm surprised the market didn't trade uh, off more. You know, if, over the weekend, I'm like, you know, 25, 30 S&P handles. Easy on Monday. Airlines are going to get crushed. Big cap, you know, these big cap integrated names and oil going to go much higher. None of it really happened. The S&P closed down nine handles, which is pretty benign. Airlines down a percent and a half. And Delta is recently off a 52-week high. So to me, this is actually a very encouraging day. And this is from somebody who's been bearish for a while and saying, you know what? You got to be impressed with the price action across the board today. Encouraging. Yeah, so I would say that's as regards to the market, right? So yeah. let's talk about the economy. Last week we had this pretty hot uh, this inflation print. And so when you think about this, when you see crude oil go up the way it did and you see the dollar actually stay bid, um, to me that actually poses some sort of issue. It could be a really interesting Fed uh, day on Wednesday. What is the commentary going to look like right now? Because we know that the administration doesn't want oil where it is. They don't want the dollar where it is. And they don't want rates where they are. So this could actually create a pretty interesting week as it relates to macro. That being said, I, again, you know, the S&P is always that thing gonna, that acts well relative to almost every other equity index. Does that it you change see. anything for the Fed decision Wednesday? I don't think so. I mean, they've, they've said, that, you know, the trade issues, that's sort of not really theirs to trade on. This is even more, it's more granular, I think, than that. So, Obviously, oil spiking this much. Ten years ago, this would have been a gigantic deal. Now, it's a big deal, but it's not as big. So 20 cents at the pump, let's say, which is what we could kind of see happen over the next couple of days. Is that the kind of consumer shock where you think they feel like they have to do anything in response to it? I don't think so. I guess it it depends how prolonged that is, right? If you look at at the curve, you know, they're showing oil back down, you know, in the 50s, several months out. But I think the market's sort of poised, all right, we're going to have either another big leg down or another big, a big leg up in oil or another big leg down. I don't think it settles in right here. Interesting. So- and my guess would be we actually see that push back to the downside. As, as the dust sort of settles, Kelly, and we start to see some of this, I mean, it was amazing how many options we saw trading over the last three or four days of last week coming into what had turned out to you be a drone tr- strike. Kind of oh, tremors. my goodness. It was wow. absolutely... 
you know, from Occidental, you go across for the XOP, XLE, all these various names. We had seen nothing but bullish activity. And it all came, and specifically, it went to some of the very, very far down, the ones that are extremely shorted, Oasis and some of these names, Whiting Petroleum. Those names were absolutely attacked in terms of buying upside. Well, they profited very, very well today on what we so saw they, over the past week. Well, what did Whiting close? Around 50% was what I saw during the session today. Again, you said heavily shorted, you know, oh. some caveats there. But what now? I mean, are those names where it says, okay, this is a, a short squeeze or some kind of move like that, and if you're bearish on energy, then you have to get out as quickly as you got in? I would say that it, the, the short squeezes only last for a number of days normally, I would say. So I was to Pete. He was in them. I, I was week. lucky enough to be in these, but only because I'd seen all this activity through our algorithms <laughs> that, that searched for that. But it was just amazing, Kelly. And I would say it's very short-lived. And the reason I say that is when we've seen stuff like this in the past, whatever the sector might be, it works for a little while. But the big scheme of things, we're talking about oil, which I think if you look out further on the chain, oil looks like it's going to be going back towards the lower end at some point. And you see that, Karen, already with backwardation. You know, price drops into the 50s a couple of months out. Oh, even if it's the case that this hangs on for, you know, whatever happened today, the fact that we're only talking about the biggest day for energy since January is pretty shocking. Why weren't there bigger reactions for some of the, the big cap oil and gas names? Well, look at the range just in, in crude, which started trading last night. When you look at, like, you know, I was actually looking at the USO, which is the ETF that tracks oil. It really was, there was no real call buying in that last week whatsoever. So I don't think, I think that crude came in last week, right? It was down from the high 50s to the low 50s. You might have seen some activity in some of these very levered names, and it might have just been very single stock related, but there was no big bets in crude futures and uh, options on crude futures or in the underlying ETF that, tra- uh, you know, that tracks the uh, commodities. So to me, it seemed like very specific. I just want to make this point, though. You know, you talked about what does it mean for the Fed? And, you know, we're going to see, you know, when we got that mid-cycle adjustment, they specifically talked about tariffs. Now, they're obviously right now, the market has found a bid, at least stock market, because they feel like that at least the rhetoric has been damped a little bit about new tariffs, but we have oil higher now. We have the dollar bid, like I just said, and we don't have a whole heck of a lot of clarity about what's going to happen here. So, you know, there is a shock that could happen if they don't actually cut. I mean, can you imagine what equities would do right there on Wednesday afternoon? That would be something that I think would cut, uh, keep. But they, you think that would be a plausible response to what we to the oil price action we've seen? Well, I'm just saying the data's been okay, the right? Been so if the data's okay, and if the, the only reason why they did that mid-quarter adjustment was because of tariffs, and right now we're more optimistic about that, I don't know, what does this oil shock do to the economy? I also, but Guy, to your point earlier, which is that you're surprised that in a way it's not more uh, extenuated 100%. today. Not only do you have the kind of headlines we don't get out of the Middle East that often, but you have energy, which would be shriveled to be the smallest sector in the S&P coming into this. percent of the S&P 500. A total dog. I mean, you had the perfect setup for a major pop. And yes, you had a pretty big one, but it was relatively contained. What does that tell you? Well, it tells me maybe the global economy is as weak as people suggest that it is. And maybe oil is not as important a commodity as it was 10 years ago. And you're talking about the biggest supply disruption in history and again, you know, the S&P, basically at its all-time high, is down nine handles. I mean, that is a remarkable performance to me. You know, airlines, which should have gotten really obliterated today, percent and a half, two percent across the board, that's not bad. So I look at this and say, understanding that the situation in Saudi Arabia is going to go on for quite some time, it's take a long time to get back online. But the market is saying, you know what, it's not a big deal. I'm encouraged by the price action. And again, I preface this by saying, you know, I'm probably one of the more bearish people on the desk. Yeah, but still, the longer it lasts, that's where you start to see the projections go up for how much the impact there could be on the oil price. A couple of other places, 
as you heard Jim Cramer talk about earlier today, the defense names. Is that a place to go if you think that the next out, you know, moves here involve the defense uh, stocks? You mentioned the airlines. American at one point is down 5% earlier. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they closed down more than that, I think. That oh, one no, in particular. Yeah. I mean, they, people, right. okay, so maybe they're not all carried out across the board, but Texas banks, by the way, I've seen people saying this is bullish for the Texas banks, Comerica and the like, because you get a better profile of the companies that they're exposed to for the time being. I would have thought we would have seen more of a response to in the defense stocks. Pretty muted, right? And pretty muted in the energy, the XLE, pretty muted. So I, get, I, I mean, the market's telling you this is just a, you know, kind of a, not a giant big to do. It won't turn into anything much bigger than this and that the economy will keep humming. Well, I was looking at some of the, the airline. I mean, a lot of them are not hedged. That's not great. But um, business is still pretty good. I don't know. I don't get it exactly. That's a more hopeful read on the consumer than I guess. Than yeah. <laughs> Actually, I thought we would like, like, I, I thought we'd see a much bigger response, even just because the market's so high. Well, the defense but, stocks, though, have already had a pretty good year coming in. So I think that's part of it, is some of it sort of almost priced in right now. I think, Dan, back to your point, though, about looking at oil futures and the USO mm-hmm. and some of those. I think when you look at the liquidity right now and the leverage that you get from a lot of these equity names that people can trade, I mean, Quite honestly, what we'd seen last week when I talk about something like Whiting Petroleum, they're buying the September 9 calls for 20 cents. Today, those went to $2. Wow. I mean, you want to talk about movement, and somebody buys 6,500 of those, and then they pile on after that to buy a few more. That's what I'm seeing in the markets right now, and that's why I think they're looking for leverage. They're looking for ways to be able to play what they see coming forward in terms of energy or whatever the space might be. But the defense stocks are really interesting. As a matter of fact, later on, i got a pitch. I might have one of those names in oh, That's a teaser. Up. That's a teaser. Pretty good one. We were just talking about crude being on the move. It's been on a come-up today, but our chart master says when it comes to oil... What goes up must come down. Carter Worth is at the plasma to tell us why uh, we might see things go belly up here. Carter? Thanks, Kelly. Yeah, so it's, it's all about the gap, meaning when you get a security that either gaps down or gaps up, news-related often, FDA approval, restate your accounting, or in this case, of course, a drone attack, the, the concept is that the lowest price on the open is higher than any preceding price on the day, and you can actually see there is a gap in the chart. And we're going to look at this in context of gaps as, as a principle. So... Let me just show you a little bit of data, and then we'll go from there. In the past 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, there have been 15 gaps, 51, 112, and all of them have been filled except for one, one, and then if you go back 30 years, only two unfilled gaps. So this gap is fairly rare, or said differently, while it's not that rare, the notion that it will live on and not be filled is unlikely. Here we go. So the gap... And these are not an investable time frame. If one's waiting for this gap to be filled back from 1999 at $12 a barrel, of course, uh, that's not reasonable. If one's waiting for the down gap when oil was at a peak and starting to come off at 103, that's not reasonable. So these two aside, these extreme, all the others have been filled, except now we have one today. Now I want to put the move in context. Here is that gap, and here is the setup going into the move. I mean, quite remarkable, yes, that... Once again, a formation of some type or some form can lead to equilibrium and then disequilibrium. But the gap barely changes the long-term picture. And we gapped above the line, and we held our gains, but not impressive. And ultimately, I do believe the gap will be filled uh, sooner rather than later. So the two major unfilled gaps, again, uh, some 100-plus gaps going back. There's one way up here. Not an investable time horizon. And there's one way down here. Again, these are 
uh, these are tomorrow's lunch. But the notion that this itty bitty little gap that we just saw, news related or not, will somehow not be filled, it just doesn't, uh, it doesn't wash in terms of the statistics. So now energy itself, here's the XLE. And what we know is its relative performance has been a disaster. And it has failed every single time when it's come up against its relative downturn. Big move with other value stocks. I don't think it goes much more than this. And then finally, of course, this is either the, uh, the sad reality or something different. Energy's weighting in the S&P is 4.7%. It's back to historic lows. That's either the great opportunity that some value investor might think, or uh, my judgment is that it, it belongs here. All right, Carter, come on over. Let's trade it. Guys, what do you think? Bring them right over. Bring them on over. Yeah. Is that a Big vote on the desk? <laughs> Did I make that sound? No, it's fine. That's we bring Carter. I think Carter's right in terms of refilling this gap. We're filling the gap to the downside. I mean, again, the price action today was interesting, but I don't think it's, you know, it's, if it was a demand story, I'd be concerned. I mean, the supply is going to come back in all different forms. We're not nearly as dependent as we used to be. And the fact, again, that these stocks or the broader market didn't react in a meaningful way leads me to believe this is not necessarily a one-day event in terms of the commodity, but it's going to back and fill it. What if everybody's point. wrong about that? Could be. You know, I mean, it was, okay, so we know what's priced in right now, a couple of week outing type of event, no major, you know, bigger geopolitical. Well, what, if, what if that's not how it pans well, out? Well, a bigger geopolitical, that's a force majeure, right? Acts of God that you can't handicap. So if there's missiles are going to fly, of course, it's going much higher. But as of now, the market's judgment, you guys were all talking about that, is muted. And I think that's the tell that for now, this is not the great event that it would, uh, headlines would suggest. There's also a big difference in the types of crude we're talking about. The ones affected, largely going to China, big customer over there. The U.S. crude, it's lighter, sweeter. It's a different refining capacity for us to handle that in our own country. What are the implications if oil stays up here? And you're China. You already have an economy that's struggling. Does it kind of cast your trade negotiations with the U.S. in a different light? Perhaps. How does that I mean, bring it yeah, back? It's an input, or maybe the Fed. These are inputs. Yeah. But, I mean, it doesn't matter for the market so much because of its low weighting as a sector. And it doesn't matter for the consumer because of... Uh, the input price of their total costs are low. But if you did nothing else but buy these sectors when they were at historic lows in terms of the S&P and sell them when they were at historic highs, wouldn't that have been a pretty good trade? It, over time, hard to identify. In fact, when a sector, oil got as high as 30-plus percent of the S&P in the 79-81 oil spike, uh, that will also work. If something gets higher than 25 percent, financials have done it, tech, you fade it, but you need a 400-year career to do it. <laughs> no problem. For Guys working on it. Years <laughs> years <laughs> there. Yeah. Would anybody here think that energy deserve, doesn't deserve to be the smallest sector of the S&P, 4.5%? Think that it might be more a sign of a bottom than a, t- you know, than a long-term perspective? I, well, I kind of do. I mean, I feel like, you know, it's been so unloved and so shorted. Maybe the short part of the story is over, right? Somewhat. I mean, if you see how you could get blasted so badly today, maybe that short part is somewhat over, which allows for it to recover on only mildly good news. Would it make it interest you enough to get involved I in some of it? a little bit. It is actually, yes, yes, it does. There's something interesting <laughs> percolating here. Yes. And again, of course, is it a sector, right? The two stocks, Exxon and Chevron, are half the weight of the entire sector. So is it good or is bad? It a sector? Well. You, you better get those two right, I guess, as a, as a process. But that's the point. Is It's not as important as it ever was. Carter, how long would crude have to stay over $60 where you'd confirm and say, you know what, now this thing is going to be able to hold and it's going or to be... how long to not fill the gaps? Right. That gets yeah. into how, how, what's the frequency at which gaps are filled. Most of the gaps, if you look back, are filled within about 30 days. Okay. So 
that could be a give time a stop. Month, yeah. give, you, give it a month. Mm-hmm. All right, Carter, thanks very much. Thanks, guys. Appreciate bet. it, sir. Carter Worth. Coming up, the United Auto Workers Union striking against General Motors. We'll tell you why the strike could shake up the auto industry. Plus, one top strategist says the mini recessions are over. He'll give you his playbook for the next rally. We're live from Times Square in New York City, and there's much more Fast Money right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Nearly 50,000 members of the United Auto Workers Union striking against GM today. The group is pushing for an increase in wages as contractual talks resume this morning. Phil Lebeau is at the picket line in Detroit with more. Phil? Kelly, late this afternoon we heard from the ratings agencies about how long a strike would have to go before it would have an impact on the finances and the balance sheet of General Motors. Let me first put some perspective in terms of what General Motors is likely losing on a daily basis. The estimate from analysts, they're pretty much in the range of between $50 million and $100 million. The $100 million definitely on the high end. Most think it's probably closer to $60 or $70 million. They're losing production of 7,500 to 8,000 vehicles a day. But remember, they've got plenty of inventory. Moody's out with the report today saying GM's ability to contend with a short duration strike no more than one or two weeks is comfortably supported by its 77 days of u.s inventory 17.5 billion of automotive cash and 16.5 billion available under its credit facility that's 77 days of vehicle supplies that's the overall average for general motors the healthy industry average is closer to 60 days and also keep this in mind kelly the very profitable chevy silverado pickup truck They've got over 90 days supply. So it's not like you're going to see a difference at a Chevy dealership anytime soon. And one last note, guys. I know you're probably hearing this music saying, what's going on? Isn't this a strike? Oh, no. Gone are the days of the chance on the picket line. They hired a DJ who is playing music here as they walk the picket line oh at the Hamtramck plants. I, I, what are we supposed to read into that, Phil? They, they plan to be here for a, settle in for the duration? Uh, well, he's certainly here for the night. He's been here for a couple of hours. Um, well, it struck us as a little odd, but that's what they've done. I have one more question for you. So competitively speaking, if this is a distraction for GM for days or, or weeks, I don't know what people are saying at this point, Ford, yeah. Chrysler, imports, Tesla, I mean, is there anybody who would you think would obviously benefit from this or it would, wouldn't work like that? Not, not, in, not immediately. This would have to go four, five, six weeks before you would start to see an impact at a dealership where a potential customer might come in and say, I want a Chevy Silverado, I want it in this trim level, I want it in this color. What? You don't have it? You can't get it? I may go across the street. But even then, Kelly, keep in mind, truck buyers are incredibly loyal. If you're a Chevy guy, you're still a Chevy guy. You'll wait out this strike. So I think the impact in terms of sales, 
you really would have to see this strike extend much further than anybody is expecting before you would see it hit the right. bottom line at General I hope they've Motors. got some more DJs lined up then. Uh, Phil, thanks very much. Enjoy tonight. Phil is in Detroit for us. How do we trade it? Well, this time, you know, 2016, this time GM was a $37 stock. You look up, where's GM? It's a $37 stock, and within a whisper of an all-time high in the S&P 500. And in, in the last decade where you can make an argument it's been the best decade ever for autos, and the stocks can't go higher. Lump that on the back of Ford, which is an even worse story. Now, people talk about valuation is compelling. I get it. You just look at the numbers. GM's probably six and a half next time's. Ford is probably lower than that. But the stocks don't go higher when they should. That, to me, is a tell. I think they're uninvestable. Yeah, I think there's actually a broader implication. If, you know, Phil said if this went five or six weeks, you may have some issues for GM. You know, this 50,000 auto workers are on strike. There's about 225,000 auto workers in America who manufacture cars, but the whole industry supports like 10 million jobs. You do not want to see this go too long. And it brings me back to last Q4 when we had the government shutdown. That was a drag on GDP. We do not want this going into Q4. Doesn't this, if anything, tell you about how how diminished the car industry has become in terms of importance? Sure, but this is a very vulnerable workforce that we know. And you know that they already have the headwind of the tariffs. This was an industry that's already facing, um, you know, that impact. So this is a part of the country that's very vulnerable. You do not want to see this go too much further it could have broader impacts yeah i think that it doesn't go very long i think trump won't let it i think it's too important for him you're talking about the sort of add-on effects of all the suppliers and you know that's the kind of wrench he absolutely doesn't want to see but the in poli- the economy if you're trump though how do you navigate the politics mm-hmm. of this because you're a very populist president but siding with the union is not something a gop president has typically done we already right. know his distaste for gm management interestingly though there. he is a republican uh, pro-business republican right. so uh, you know that's a that is a tough tightrope to walk but i think it's really important if this starts to drag on, I, I don't think he would want to see how, for sure, how it would unravel the race. And let's not forget, this is very early. And to Phil's point, we've got five to six weeks before it does become something that's a bit more concerning. So I think for right now, it's a great headline. It's great for us to discuss this thing. But this has to get a little bit further down the road before it becomes something that we're all as concerned about as we kind of seem like we are. But to deck. Guy's point, there's like no outcome that says, oh, you got to buy GM stock here. You know, Absolutely. I mean, like, really, it's, it's just From like a stock dead, trade, dead, Ford dead and GM yeah. are very, very difficult. I own GM for a very long period of time. It virtually did nothing. I collected a little bit of a yield. I'd sell calls, but it wasn't enough, so Kelly. There's no do? performance. What should the company do if they want to change that? Well, they're outcome? doing what they're doing. They're moving. They're offshoring jobs. They're cutting. They're idling factories. They're, you know, like that's what they're doing, and it's a, it's a real shame. You, the president of the United States can't force a company that has a fiduciary responsibility to its shareholders. The company that was bankrupt in the last financial crisis here, they're going to have to make t- difficult choices. Every step of the way. They've had to do that for decades now. Do and they that's get bailed continu- out by the trade agreement, the USMCA, if that is passed and requires more you know, U.S. sourcing and that kind of thing? Well, I mean, listen, one of the issues why that, it, why that bill is not passed is, and one of the reasons why the president had issues with this was these jobs that were in Mexico and Canada, specifically Mexico, there was no confirmation about all the things that were built into NAFTA. And if you took it, look at people, at least Dems, who don't want to pass it right now, they're saying we still don't have those confirmations. We still don't know that the jobs are not going to be... Um, more competitive down there. So it's really not a, a new NAFTA. It's just a, you know, it looks like it did before. There's no way to really enforce a lot of this stuff to keep these jobs here. So the car makers are tied with energy in the unpopularity contest today. No one wants to own it. Even more so. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm Kelly Evans, and you're watching Fast Money on CNBC. Here's what else is coming up on Fast. 
Coming up, Market Vol Tony Dwyer says it's time to get offensive as we come out of mini-recession. Plus, could Uber and Lyft finally be getting it in gear? Don't go anywhere. Fast Money will be right back. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Wall Street's tough day isn't discouraging one of the market's biggest bulls. He believes investors should be playing offense because stocks are on the verge of a sustainable leg higher. Tony Dwyer is here. He's chief market strategist at Canaccord Genuity. Tony, welcome. And you're saying, so you think we have had some mini recessions, but they're over now and it's clear sailing? We, on, on the show a few weeks ago, we actually, we had called for a correction. You know, this classic strategy is saying I, I called it right, but we, you know, it's, it's, in, it's on the airway. So um, we, it was a few weeks ago that we thought that the sentiment got bad enough and that some of the data was already discounted, that it was time, especially on the 10-year note yield, the drop in the 10-year note yield, it was time to get more offensive. So the supporting evidence to that in the mini-recession call is if you look back at 2011, 2012, when the pigs were there and Greece was going to get knocked out of the euro and the euro was going to break up, that's as bad as a trade war, right? So the 10-year note yield got back below 1.5%. What was interesting is in October 2011, the stock market bottomed down 19.6%. The 10-year didn't bottom until July of that year. So in that meantime, the S&P rallied 22%, led by the defensives into the 10-year yield low in July. Off of there, you went up an additional 38% to what, until the 10-year got over 3 and 3%. So the whole point here is offense should be on the field, not because I have some great economic prognostication, but all signs are that the 10-year made a low. And if that's true, it's replicating the 2011, 12, 2015, 16 period where there was clearly an industrial recession. So are you making a call about the 10-year going back to 3% or above or... I think it'll go back to 2.5%. Nobody on the planet, Kelly, thought that we were going to go back to 1.5% at this point 10 years into a cycle. Right? So what I think is happening is going back and looking at the 1950s. Sorry to do it to you. Going back and looking at the 1950s, there were four recessions from 1949 to 1961. They were very brief. The market only went down about 20% each time, and then the market went rip into new highs. Very similar to now, and I think technology, just-in-time inventory, more consumption as a percent of GDP is preventing that official recession, but clearly we're having these mini-recessions driven by global industrial output. And maybe the whole argument over whether we are or aren't going to have one keeps confusing the picture because what's really happening is you have a bunch of growth scares. You have quarters where GDP goes negative or almost goes to zero. You have market corrections of 10 to 20 percent. But that's a different story than everyone who keeps bracing for 
we're going to have another financial crisis, and here it comes but, again. But Tony, let me ask you this, though. I mean, sure. like, if you think about what just happened in the last couple of weeks. We've seen a major moderation in the talk about trade. We've seen massive stimulus in China. We've seen massive stimulatory action by the ECB. So we've had this bounce in rates. No one thought they were going to go down to 1.5 or 4.5 or something like that. Um, but it just seems like we're in a spot here to get out of your mini recessions. What we need to do 10 years on from this economic crisis that we had, it seems like it's getting a little untenable, isn't it? I mean, like, that's the thing. Is it sustainable? And the other point about yeah. the S&P getting back up to 3000, it doesn't break out. So what's the thing that breaks it out this time in a sustainable fashion? The ECB totally disappointed in their action last week, their commentary in terms of what they were going to do to make sure that inflation got back to where they want it to be is what drove rates in the market and the spike in the 10-year. They got ahead of it, not by they cut rates by blah, blah. So I don't really care if it's 25 or 50 basis points. If they do 50 basis points on Wednesday and say we're done for the rest of the time, market's going to get creamed. Right? They need to get ahead of the market. The highest interest rate cannot be the Fed funds rate. Right. So what gets us over 3000 is that, Dan, uh, again, the, the global economy is weak. I'm not going to be the strategist getting on here telling you, oh, it's good. It's getting less bad in the data. If you look at the purchasing managers, Brett, the purchasing managers index positive, that's inflected off a low. The same thing with the OECD leading indicators, uh, composite leading indicators for the 36 countries they follow. It's inflecting off the low. You can't have the market as a negative when you hit a highest level of all time, but the sequential data is rolled over, so that's a sale. And then you hit the worst level of all time, and the sequential data is getting better, and that's a sale too. Right? So I, I think that so what the is, data is going to get better. Give us the playbook then. What is it? What does it look like? Offense. I mean, Kelly, this is offense. This is everybody's what does that mean? meaning. Consumer discretionary, financials, industrials, the more cyclical parts of tech. Uh, and again, this was our call from a couple of weeks ago where you get this reflation trade as long as the Fed stays ahead of the curve. And what shuts this whole game down. So you down, want people to put this on before their decision Wednesday. <laughs> that's a big in case. Well, that's our call. You either make yeah. a call or you don't, right? So, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> like, no, you know, the, the viewers of Fast Money know I'm not the greatest hedger of all time. So, I mean, but, but again, the whole key to this thing is the Fed has to get a, ahead of the curve. They have to convince the market that we're not going to become Europe and go into negative. I, so I asked a salesperson today who I begged, literally begged two weeks ago. I, I did it on air. Please refinance your debt. Please. You're 1.4% refinance your loan, right? So I went over to the desk today and I said, did you refinance your loan? No, my, my husband wants me to wait for lower rates. Okay, that's what the Fed wants to avoid. Stop waiting for lower rates. It's as low as it's going to get. Let's get in there. So, you know, this kind of churning we're seeing in the market today, I think, has more to do with we got extremely overbought in, th- in two weeks. Yeah. Right? So maybe oil is an excuse. And the Fed meeting, who's going to really take an offensive playbook into going the Fed into meeting? That, and I don't want to suggest to the, to the viewers that I'm going to be calling the next tick. I, I'm awful at it. That's why but I'm a strategist. But you do think they should refinance? I think I think they re, they should refinance. You could have a pullback in rates. You know what's going to be interesting is to see how Saudi Arabia responds to the oil crisis. You know that's not a news item where they blow up their biggest thing and they're like, okay, we're good. So I'm kind of waiting to see what the global response is to the whole attack, and that may create a temporary law you can take advantage of and get offensive. Tony, thanks. Thank you, Kelly. No hedging. Tony Dwyer, <laughs> thank you so much, sir. Uh, what do you guys think? Well, the banks are interesting. And you back out the December 24th loan and in like Citibank. And, you know, Citi's traded between basically 60 and 72 on a number of different occasions 
over the last year. And we've seen a pretty big move in Citi since Tony made that call from 61 to trade it over 70 today. I still think the banks are sort of in a range bound, and we can agree to disagree on that front. But going to my earlier comment, the fact, again, that the stock market, I think, held in extraordinarily well in the wake of what was pretty, could have been really negative news to me is pretty encouraging. And again, I'll say, I'm, this is coming from the bearish guy on the desk. <laughs> Thank you all. Guys, coming up, Uber and Lyft revving up on upgrades today. But could a rideshare revival really be on the way? We will ask. Plus, Pete's warming up to pitch one name that he says is a home run. He'll give us that name. Much more Fast Money right after this. analysts at HSBC upgraded those ride-hailing companies to a buy rating while lowering their price targets. Uh, shares were up about 3.5% apiece. Analysts at the HSBC were saying both stocks down over 20% in the last few months. Regulatory concerns are already priced in. So, everybody, are the roads all clear for Uber and Lyft, or do you cancel that ride? I don't know about all clear, but you go back and look at Lyft's quarter, which was, you know, a month and a half, two months ago, when the stock was trading 61 or thereabouts. I thought it was a really good quarter. They basically gave us a pathway to profitability. And the only thing that was sort of overhanging stock was exactly that, this overhang in terms of shares. Wait, stock was this the quarter when they said they were losing $5 billion because of all the, you know, the IPO-related comp and all that? And Which, I don't think Uber it was $5 Lyft? billion. That was Uber. Uber. So, Lyft, so, and you go back to Lyft's quarter quickly. I mean, Lyft, I thought, was a very good quarter. The problem was the 275 million shares or so that were coming out August 18th. The stock traded from 62 down to 41, and you know what? The price action over the last couple of weeks has been good. I'm not suggesting it's going back to 62, but I still think you can see it move from where it currently is to the mid-50s. I think when you look at the two names, they are distinctly different. And I would actually lift, I'd go towards lift. It sounds like that's the direction you're going as well, Scott. i got to see Uber tell us what their path to profitability is. We haven't seen that. They just continue to burn up money, use up money, $2 billion, whatever the numbers are, the $5 billion that you just brought up. But Lyft, on the other hand, actually gave us a glimpse of, hey, look, we see a path into the future where we start to get ourselves and make money. That's important to me because until you give us that, why are we investing? Mm -hmm. And I think that's why all these analysts have been off sides for so long with these targets that are way up here. And they're going to continue to ratchet them down, Kelly, because... That path is very, very difficult, and when do they get there? We still have no clue when Uber gets there. What about the fact that Uber gives you the Uber Eats option, which Lyft doesn't offer? And I think a part of the analyst's argument here was, look, you know, you're basically getting that for free at this point. Uh, I don't, that's a money-losing endeavor as well, yeah. right? I mean, that, that's so competitive. So I don't even know that, that at some point that's valuable, but so that, that makes me also lean toward Lyft instead of Uber. You know, I was talking to an early investor in Lyft, and he told me that not only um, was that guidance really encouraging, um, so the first one post-IPO, um, that they'd never actually missed an internal um, guidance that they'd given as a private company. So they had been guiding investors appropriately. So what, I think when you get to their Q3, it's probably going to be in early, late October, early November, and they beat again, and now we know what the um, overhead uh, supply looks like as far as the lockup. I think this stock gets back up you know, probably to the high 50s. That's just my guess, as long as they do that um, again. And A, nice lift colors over there, uh, Karen Sport. 
reporting. Uh, but to me, I think you, you know your play is that it's a pure play on North American rideshare. And if they continue to execute and show a path of profitability, that's the one you want to be in. I can't really speak to Uber. There's a lot of things going and even, on. And even with the California crackdown and other states might be coming? And- yeah, I just think that the sentiment got really bad in, uh, in Uber, too. And last week on, on the halftime, Scott had Bill Gurley from Benchmark, yeah. early Uber investor, and Brad Gerstner um, from Altimeter. Both of those guys seemed really kind of geeked up down here about the story here. And so these they are geeked up higher, too, though. Well, right? I, but, I mean, these but, guys have been geeked but, up, but, geeked up. But I keep hearing from people, not only did they not sell a share and the lockup of Lyft and, and probably an Uber, but they're adding to these. I'm not speaking for those people, but they're adding to them. And that's what the sort of action that you want to see. All right. Let's move on and talk about uh, Amazon as well. Look at the shares today under pressure following a Wall Street Journal report that the company has changed its search algorithms to favor products with higher profit margins instead of customer relevancy or bestseller status. Sold off nearly 2% today. An Amazon spokesperson told CNBC it did not change search results to include profitability. It did acknowledge that long-term profitability is a factor it uses when evaluating new search features. Bueller. <laughs> oh, you're looking towards me. I thought we were going to Guy on this I'm one. Looking, I was looking at you. I was looking at you. I'm sorry. I was I'm looking at the whole thing on Amazon. You know what? Uh, jumping in on this Amazon. One. I, I still look at Amazon. I'm probably the only guy on the desk who thinks this, but I, I look at it and I see an incredible valuation in terms of height of where it is. So I'm a little bit not as bullish as probably most of the people on the desk. I've missed this run. I continue to miss the run because other, I still think this is a company that's that's literally not what everybody thinks it is. This is a cloud company. They're the best and the biggest that exists. And this is all just a sideshow on the other side of things. So these things, I think, don't matter as much to me as the entire cloud world where they AWS, which is still king over Microsoft and over all the rest. of the Well, I, you can make the argument that cloud is actually less and less important when you think about the competition that's coming in. Obviously, the pie keeps growing, uh, but their share keeps diminishing. Their profitability has stead, been steadfast. And that's one of the reasons why the stock is still, you know, around. But that's 2, where they 000. make their money. Dan, no, right? I, no, I understand. But like, yeah. I think back to this story. What's really interesting is that this third party selling some of the deals they've done with brands like Nike on their platform. Form. This is going to be the future of their business. Why did they buy Whole Foods? They're doubling down on retail. They want retail to become more profitable. They've used AWS profitability to help them kind of sustain some of the losses and the other stuff. But, you know, this is a company that's going to do over $200 billion in sales. They are just a With few no percent of U.S. Profit. consumer spending, and they have an avenue to become much bigger. So to me, you know, I, I just... With low margin. That's the problem. Well, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not arguing to buy it. You can make the argument, if you pulled up a chart, it just broke below the uptrend that had been in place from the December. The chart looks broken to me. So near term, um, you know, stories like this aren't good for sentiment. And it only adds to the potential for regulatory issues, because this is the sort of thing that a lot of people are going to squawk to Congress about. The first thought, absolutely, yeah, yeah. was what kind of scrutiny is it going to draw? Thank you all still ahead. Batter up. Pete is stepping up to the plate to pitch one defense stock. He says is gearing up for a big breakout. He'll give you that name. Plus, check out shares of Toll Brothers today taking off. And one trader is betting the home builder has even more room to run. Don't go anywhere. There's much more fast money after this. Delivering Alpha, the most important investor summit, nine years running. Strategy from leading alpha generators. Direct access to policymakers and government leaders. On September 19th, see who's calling the shots now. Go to DeliveringAlpha.com to attend this year's blockbuster event. You will come away with ideas that you can put to work immediately. Plus, special guest Vice President Mike Pence talks economy and trade war impact. Reserve your spot now at DeliveringAlpha.com. 
Welcome back to Fast Money Markets. Feeling the heat to kick off the week with the Dow breaking its eight-day win streak and just two of the major S&P sectors closing in the green. So if you're wondering where to get the best bang for your buck, fear not. Our Pete Nigerian is stepping up to the plate with his fast pitch. He's over at the plasma. Pete, take it away. Well, this is a stock I actually even bought today. And I'll tell you what, I was getting more and more convinced as I was looking into the depth of this stock. We saw some option activity in here, but general dynamics. First of all, the CEO who's been there and was put in as the CEO in 2013. Stock has moved from 66 to 191 since she was put in place. So that's number one. Number two is I love the idea of the aggressiveness towards cybersecurity with the acquisitions. $10 billion acquisition that was made just last year. So I like an aggressive CEO who's actually knowing where this company needs to go into the future. And that's exactly what I think she did with that purchase. Now, when you look at the fundamental story here, you get a nice dividend yield. This is a stock that right now trades at about a 15 PE, maybe a little bit higher than that. A little lower than some of the competition, although Lockheed, if you look at a forward, is somewhere very close. But I see a lot of growth here as well. Some of the positives about the earnings and the cash flow. Cash flow, about $3 billion a year, very strong. When you look at the earnings, that's grown over the last five years by about 60-plus percent. And then you look at the revenues as well, extremely strong. So they're hitting it out of the park, in my opinion. I think there's plenty of upside. We talk about valuations all the time about companies. This is a company, despite the fact that the S&P is at highs, Take a look. This stock is not at highs. I think there is room to the upside for General Dynamics to get back up into the 200s in the not-too-distant future. By the way, today, they were buying upside calls, the 210 strike calls to the upside. So somebody thinks that this stock does break through 200. I happen to agree with them. Who wants a question? A for quick me? question. Yeah. You know, I'm going I'm to agree with you, so I'll tell you that ahead of time. But what's interesting, this is not just an aerospace company. Right. You know, you mentioned information technology. In terms of revenue, they're basically doing the same thing as aerospace. So you, you mentioned valuation. Shouldn't they get re-rated? I'm not going to compare it to Apple, but the same way Apple's being re-rated, right. shouldn't General Dynamics be being re-rated as well? I would, I would be on side with that as well, and I don't think that's happened yet. But if that does, I think that actually does lift this stock even more, Guy. Now, they've got four different, they have 25% give or take in four different categories, all of them very obviously very close to equal, not quite 25%, but close to that in terms of what is really driving this company. You, you hit on a couple of them. I like what they're doing. I think that acquisition was huge for them, and that's what really gives them a lot more diversity in terms of where are you going to get your revenue growth. Well, I think they figured it out. All right, no more questions. Let's get to the vote. Are you buying Pete's General Dynamics? Drum roll, please, Dan. <laughs> yeah, I'm buying it. That's a good... Um that's a good presentation. Here's a stock that obviously um, there's some cyclicality to it. There's some secular trends that they're doing. It's a cheap stock. It's a mid-single uh, digits EPS grower. Um, you know, I think it looks good. Karen? Yes. I'm oh. not a great artist. That's defense, <laughs> you'll know, from your football days. I thought it was a housing development. Okay, or it's a housing development. Either way, I'm a buyer. I like the pitch. No, that's just the fence. It's not, you have to put the D in there. That's what the sign is. That's what Syracuse needed. I'm going to just you? say yes. I'm going to make there it easy you for you, Kelly. I'm going to say, you know, we bottomed out in December like many stocks did. I don't know if we're going to retest the old highs back in March of 18, but I think we're going to get close. So I say I'm a yes buyer here on GD. Take a bow, Pete. Very like nice. You guys. <laughs> With Tony Braxton, she's our music. We'll see how oh, she weighs terrible. in. <laughs> Tony Braxton. Yes. The desk is voted, but are you at home buying Pete's pitch on General Dynamics? You can vote right now in our Twitter poll at CNBC Fast Money, and we'll reveal the results later in the show. Plus, check out our Kramer cam. Jim is laying out his big winners and losers. In today's huge oil move, you do not want to miss his take 
on today's developments. That's coming up on Mad Money Top of the Hour. We're live here at the NASDAQ in Times Square. Much more Fast Money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money and check out Toll Brothers, up more than 5% today, breaking out to a new 52-week high and surging to double-digit gains in just the past week. Bank of America upped its price target on that home builder, only from 38 to 40. We're over 40 already today, but that call sent the options market into a frenzy. Dan Nathan is here to break down the action. Yeah, so this is interesting today. You know, usually you don't see this sort of activity on a broker raising price targets on a group, but they go back a little bit to what Tony was saying about playing a little offense here with this uh, kind of rate move. You know, here's the deal. You know, call volume or total options volume was 15 times average daily volume. Most of that was in calls. And today, traders were buying calls right out of the gate when the stock was 39 bucks. You know, the stock closed at 47.6. So this morning it was trading 39 bucks. There were buyers of the October 41 calls, the largest block of the day was a buy of 8,000 of those for 43 cents. Those obviously appreciated a lot um, throughout the course of the day, looking to play for just some higher highs here. Let's go to the charts real quickly. Look at the one-day chart of this thing. Like Kelly just said, new 52-week high. Look at it on a two-year basis. This stock and the group in general were down a whole heck of a lot. That 41 or 40-ish level was kind of near-term technical resistance, a level it had not been over, um, obviously, as we said, in over a year. But look at that to the upside. The stock was trading as high as 50 at some point in 2018. It's a cheap stock trading about 10 times. We know that um, obviously these aren't huge growers. They're mid to low single digits, earnings and sales. Um, But if you think that there's kind of some supply demand dynamics that were just shaken up by this rate move, um, that's why these names are moving. Lastly, right there, that's implied volatility. The price of uh, options in Toll Brothers got really cheap into this um, consolidation the stock had been in over the last few months. So making long um, premium directional bets in options was a good way to do it. And I think that's what traders were thinking today. That was a big move uh, on the close. Uh, Appreciate it, Dan. For more options action, tune into the full show this Friday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. But don't go anywhere because up next, final trades. Let's go around the horn. Pete, kick it off. We had some monstrous buying and dish today. NFL ticket. Go Browns. Giddy up. <laughs> Karen? Yes, my final trade actually was the final trade that I did today. Buying some more S&P puts. I think the VIX should be higher. Huh? Dan? Uh, yeah, lift. Really feels like it's trying to bottom here in the mid-40s. And guys. Did you have fun? Did you enjoy you your maiden voyage on CNBC's Fast Money? Why? Because you guys show. are the best. I don't have to do anything. You do all the hard work. I just say go around the horn. What's the next trade? <laughs> an excellent point by you. I think Delta Airlines, I actually think it traded well. DAL there, sister. Excellent. Guys, thank you all very, very much. It's been a lot of fun. That does it for us. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5. Med Money with Jim Cramer begins right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.